Hey guys, this is Mike Mahaffey, the old bastard BJJ guy, here for BJJ Mental Models. Back in my day, we had to walk uphill in the snow both ways to get to the academy just to learn some crappy technique from a random purple belt. You kids have it so easy, because now you can just subscribe to BJJ Mental Models Premium and get tons of great audio courses to learn new techniques, enhance your mindset, and entertain yourself. You can even get personalized rolling reviews from some of your favorite BJJ Mental Models coaches, including me. It's like having your own seminar, you spoiled little whippersnappers. So what are you waiting for? Subscribe to BJJ Mental Models Premium right now, get off my lawn, and go train. Hey, welcome to BJJ Mental Models, episode 120. I'm Steve Kwan. BJJ Mental Models is your guide to a conceptual and intelligent jujitsu approach. And today, you can stop bugging me. We brought on actually our most requested guest, Ms. Dom Obelanite. Dom, how are you doing? I'm doing amazing and so, so flattered to hear that I'm the most requested guest because I would not be my own most requested guest. <laughs> Well, there's a backstory to this, and that is we got onto the topic, a bunch of our listeners, talking about art and jujitsu, because I've noticed that there is this cross-community of jujitsu artists, people who usually are black belt plus in jujitsu, but also they have successful careers in artistic endeavors. And these people will swear up and down, like there is a bleed over between the two, that there's a commonality between the two. And I'm just not capable of understanding that because I don't have an artistic bone in my body. So this is a topic we wanted to explore for a long time. And everyone said, the person to talk to is Dom. So with that said, I mean, I know your backstory, and I'm sure that most of our listeners do. But just for the benefit, why don't you give yourself a quick introduction? Sure, of course. So my official title is Dominica Obelanita, which is usually what most people know me as, or just Dominica, as the tournament announcers would call me. I'm a four-time black belt world champion, nine-time overall world champion. I've been doing jiu-jitsu for about 15 years now, and I currently run my own program in a gym called Heinz Combat Sports in Long Island City in Queens, New York. So if you're ever down here, Come visit me even through these pandemic times. I am also less likely known as a student that just graduated university and an artist that is trying to make her career happen alongside jiu-jitsu. And the art mediums that I tend to work with the most include mixed media, printmaking, painting, and drawing with markers. Sweet, sweet, sweet. So if people want to check out your work, I mean, of course, I'm sure that most of our listeners being jujitsu folks are probably more than capable of finding comp footage. But in terms of your artistic endeavors, is there a place where people can see that work? Oh, thank you so much for asking this question. You set me up to plug myself. I love that, Steve. So you can find some of my artwork highlights or the process highlights on my Instagram, which is at Dom the Bomb Your Mom. That's all one word. Or you can go. <laughs> I know, great name. Gianni Grippa once told me that I need to change it once I got my black belt because it was time to get serious, and I denied that request. But you can also find my art in the quicker approach by going to www.dominica-art. That's Dominica, my full name, just my full first name, dash art.com. It's a website that has all of my works outlined from many years of making and has some special projects outlined as well, including a holiday display window that I did and a mural that I did both in around the east side of New York. And you can also reach out to me there and ask about any commissions or pricing information or anything like that. All works, except for the ones that have already been sold, are for sale. Well, let me start this off then by asking you a question. And that question is, which came first, the jujitsu or the artistic endeavors? Did you start one before the other and at some point branch off or did one kind of naturally lead to the other or were these just two different pursuits you started at different times and now you're seeing some convergence between them? I would say that I was definitely never a physical kid. 
I was definitely one of those kids that was on the road for being an anime nerd. If my parents hadn't included me in sports, I probably would have sat at the lunch table and have drawn anime characters all day if I could. But when I was a little kid, I really didn't have a lot of toys to play with when I lived in Lithuania. I mean, my grandparents provided for me and everything, but my kind of main feature for fun was creating. So I would like to make things. I'd like to kind of glue things together, stitch things. And drawing was kind of the easiest medium because there's paper and pens everywhere you look. So I started drawing from a very young age. And then the older I grew and the more I was able to make my own choices, like dress myself or kind of figure out who, what my identity was, the more I leaned towards design and aesthetics and kind of wackiness and experimentation. So I've always been drawn to color. I've always been drawn to creation, craftsmanship, things like that. I, I was always, anytime I had a free moment, I'd be making music or making bracelets or trying to learn how to knit or trying to glue things together, making poster boards, just doing whatever I could that was hands-on and creative. And I was doing that from a very early age. And I started jujitsu when I was around nine. And now I started not because I necessarily wanted to, but because my dad wanted to give me an opportunity to learn some self-defense because the school I was going to at the time had a little bit of a bullying problem. And he wanted me to be afforded the opportunity to learn how to defend myself and protect myself, especially as an immigrant who didn't have a great vocabulary and couldn't necessarily stand up for herself verbally. So that's kind of how I got started in jujitsu. I would say that, you know, as an immigrant, I'm actually shocked that you're an immigrant because your English is immaculate. It is better than most of the native English speakers we have on the show. Oh, for real, Steve? I was... You're an immigrant. I would never would have pegged it because your accent is so amazing. No, no, no. I'm not an immigrant, but I was saying that I would not have believed that you are because your English is perfect. I see. I see. Yes. So my boyfriend actually said that he knew that my English was off or he knew he kind of recognized an accent somewhere in my language because he said that I over enunciate or over pronounce certain words like I speak too proper and I think it's a I think it's honestly a symptom of my mom being the first English speaker that I was always surrounded by because my dad didn't really communicate with me in English but my mom would and I would always be kind of walking with her to the store and stuff and I'd hear her interact and have small talk with people and she learned English from a British speaker so her English was very proper British English and then I had this combination of weird proper British English from my mother and less proper regular American style English from my ESL teachers. So it all formed together to create this hybrid language that sometimes has an accent and sometimes doesn't. That is my accent. <laughs> <laughs> well, hey, that's another thing that you've created then, I guess, right? And I one thing that I've learned having done podcasting is you want to be a little bit unique, right? I always used to think, oh, you know, I kind of wish I had a voice that just blended into the background. But once you start actually doing a lot of speaking and speaking engagements and interviews, you understand that being distinctive is often better than just blending into the background, right? It's the differences between us that ultimately make us more interesting than if we all just talked exactly the same. Oh, 1000%, Steve. And I, I really want to say that when you're a kid, and obviously, I had my own special set of circumstances that I was fighting against. I was kind of fighting against being an immigrant, especially when I moved to New Jersey and I lived in a more upper class neighborhood. A lot of the kids would tell me to go back to my country, and I felt very isolated in that way. I also did a sport that was more male-dominated, and a lot of kids would kind of joke around and call me a man and call me like gorilla arms and try to kind of play at my masculinity because I did this kind of sport and it obviously like worked to infuriate me. But when you're a kid, you will take any uniqueness of your identity or anything that sets you apart and makes adults go, wow, like this kid has a lot of potential or this kid is so cool or interesting or creative. You will take those things and you might not necessarily run with them because they're easy sources for bullying. They're easy sources for people to pick apart and say, hey, that's different about you. So there's something wrong with you. So I always took these little things like people having a hard time pronouncing my name, let alone my last name, my first name, people having 10 different ways to say my first name, people questioning whether my accent was from this country or that because it wasn't perfect English. 
people wondering about my clothes, people wondering about my hair, about the sports that I did. These are all things that I hated. I wanted so badly to blend in, especially in middle school where most of kids' anger or kids are kind of just starting to figure out that they can be mean and still get away with it because they still have chubby cheeks and adults don't really want to punish people like that. Mm -hmm. That's where kids first start realizing they can be really mean without much repercussion. So in middle school is when I really tried to tamper down my identity. And now as an adult, I'm so glad I didn't because I think, like you're saying, those identifying marks are what make us who we are. Those uh, really like unique characteristics are what build us up to be the people we're supposed to be. Yeah. Anti-bullying is something I'm super passionate about and not just because I want kids to be happy, but because as I get older, I am learning and more understanding how much damage it does in the long term when kids are bullied because it does encourage kids to stop expressing their uniqueness and to stop expressing the things that make them different. And I'm almost 40 and I still catch myself doing things that are contrary to my personal growth because I'm afraid of putting myself out there. And I'm afraid because as a child, I was taught that being different is bad. And this is something that, you know, when we talk about bullying, I I don't think that we're really fully explaining to people the long-term damage that bullying causes. And I I mean, you know, you can talk about things like zero tolerance all you want. I mean, I, I'm not really sure that's the best approach, but I think that we really need to understand that like bullying is probably one of the most like existential problems we have as a society when it comes to creativity and personal growth. Because if you teach people that it's not okay to be different They're never going to want to innovate. They're never going to want to create, right? A lot of the people I know who are really, really successful, like worldly successful, you know, they have like eight or nine figure even net worth. And I'm lucky enough to know a few of these people. One of the common threads amongst them that I can tell is it really doesn't appear that they ever had that creativity and that uniqueness beaten out of them. And if anyone tried, it certainly didn't work, right? And, And that's something that I've noticed. And Let's maybe use that as a, as a segue here. When we're talking about creativity and innovation, you know, you mentioned at the beginning that you were an anime girl. And, you know, I think that one of the interesting things I see in the jujitsu world is there is this massive, shameless nerd culture within it. I mean, my day job, I'm a technologist, right? I, I work in tech leadership for software companies and everyone there is a shameless nerd. And I'm always completely shocked at how much that also crosses over into the jujitsu community. And I know it does into the art community as well. And I'd love to hear you riff on this a bit. I mean, what are kind of your feelings in terms of the weird personality quirks that we have as a as a jujitsu culture? And how does that help people become artistic, if at all? Sure. So actually, I used to have this very jaded perception of artists. I used to have this very unfair kind of blanket opinion about artists as being these kinds of people that assume that they were really important in in this very like I am nothing I could never be anything I'm just a starving artist that is creating as a form of coping as a form of self-expression to help me get through this life in this very debilitating way I always thought that artists had crazy egos and that I didn't want to be associated with them I always saw artists as these like the ones that were successful to be these like fancy pompous human beings that thought that their ideas were like the most important and had to see the light of day. And this is an opinion I had when I was a teenager. And this is an opinion I had about people like Jeff Koons. And the more that I grew older, the more I realized that it's very difficult to become an artist. You do need to rely a a professional fine artist, somebody that gets exhibited in galleries and museums and has like extremely successful but expensive curatorial opportunities People like that have to collaborate a lot. They have to be good speakers. They have to kind of put their self on the side a little bit to make somebody else happy, to make the buyer happy. It was not a correct judgment at all, but I would always see it as this community that I didn't want to be a part of. And honestly, I had the same vision for jujitsu. At some point, I think when I was coming out of being a teenager to venturing off into adulthood in the 18, 19 range, 
I started to think of the jujitsu community as one that I didn't really want to associate myself with. And you talk about the community being nerdy, and I completely agree with you. There's a facet of it that is nerdy. There's a facet of it that is athletic and jockey. There's a facet of it that's a little burnouty. There's a facet of it that like basically encapsulates every click that you see in high school, right? And I was a part of this athletic jock crew. And in that crew, I just saw, again, so much ego swarming, so much self-importance swarming, so much of I want to be heard, I want to be seen. Um, I'm going to use jujitsu as my platform to be seen and to have um, support in the form of like support from followers, support from fans. And I really wanted to get away from it for the same reason that I had those kind of jaded qualms about being an artist. And then the the older I've grown, the more I've realized that the communities are really more nuanced than that. They're both microcosms of the greater human population. And we're bound to see iterations of regular people we see in the day-to-day in both communities. And it's just become a measure of kind of like finding my own peace and my own crew of people within both communities that I can get along with the best. And for me, honestly, it's just people that are thinkers, people that are less concerned about what they should do and more concerned about what feels right to do and what feels right in terms of like what's going to help make them grow, what's going to challenge them, what's going to lead them into a life of adventure and of kind of figuring out what the next steps of their lives are going to be. So for me, there's like a lot of intersectionality between the two communities and I love finding the new groups that I'm a part of every single year. I feel like every year I kind of shed an old skin of the jujitsu practitioner and the artist that I was, and I grow a new one. And with that comes a new plethora of people that I kind of come into contact with as a result. It's interesting you say that because I've been going through a very similar thing recently where I've kind of thought, you know, is looking at, you know, certain sects of the jujitsu community, I do find myself questioning, is, is this really for me? You know, I've been doing this for a long time, but at the end of the day, do I really self-identify with these groups? But you're right. You can you can subsect and you can you can look around and you can find a group of people who speak to you and build you up. And as an artifact of doing the show, I've had the opportunity to meet a lot of amazing people who I would say are emblematic of what I want jujitsu to be. And that's something that I think alongside with what you said about how, you know, artists, there's so much more than just the making of the art. I think these are areas where we don't really prepare people properly, both in terms of artists and in terms of of grapplers, right? This is a commonality in my mind. Like when people get into jujitsu, if they want to be world champion, you know, to a lay person, they often think that that just means, oh, you've just got to be really good and you've got to train a lot. And similarly with being an artist, a lot of the time, presumably people think that means, oh, you either have this skill or you don't. And it's just about painting stuff. But in reality, like any true profession, there are so many other skills that have to exist around that, right? Yeah, it's great if you're an amazing artist or an amazing grappler, but you also need to build the relationships and the networks and the processes to succeed. We were talking to Travis Stevens recently, and, you know, he was going on uh, as a Danaher black belt. He was going on about, you know, how, what really makes some of their guys really successful and different. And one of the things he was saying is that, they will treat it like a profession, right? A lot of jujitsu people treat it as a thing you go in and you do and you train and then you roll into a tournament and you wreck shop. But these guys will treat it like a profession, like an actual like Olympic athlete would, where they have a regiment, they have a team, they have goals, strategies, they have a plan. You know, basically they provide the same level of, of diligence and process that like a professional accountant would or a lawyer would, right? Like a lawyer doesn't just train lawyering and then go and do lawyering and that's it. Like there's a whole level of, I mean, I work with lawyers. It, it is a, an extraordinarily complex field and it's it's really reductive and inaccurate to say, oh, it's just you read a bunch of books and then you go and you argue in a courtroom, right? And I think with jujitsu and art, we have a similar problem where I feel like we don't really prepare people properly. Like, uh, you know, most artists, I would say, and you tell me if I'm wrong, you can train people in the process of creating art. But do you think that we really prepare artists for how to succeed professionally as an artist when they have to go out there and start making money? Oh my gosh, absolutely not. I think you bring up such an interesting point, which is that there is no step-by-step comprehensive plan for achieving 
anything of importance in jujitsu or in the art field. In jujitsu, you know that if you train hard and you compete, you might win, which might equate to something. It might equate to interviews. It might equate to podcasts. It might equate to more opportunities in privates and seminars. It might equate to getting on your coach's good side and receiving more responsibility in the gym, but it might not. It's not guaranteed. If you go to medical school and you attend your classes and you study hard and you pass your tests and you get A's, you'll graduate medical school. You'll probably get a residency, right? Or a fellowship. And that's when you progress even further. And then you'll probably end up having a career in the medical field. But in jujitsu, it's not like that. You have to almost like a lot of uh, content creators or social media influencers right now are figuring out, you have to build your own profession as you go. You have to figure out what to do. And the sad thing is, and this is true for art and jiu-jitsu, if you're not taking your role seriously, if you're not taking what you're doing as a profession, you're not going to take yourself seriously and you're going to let a lot of things pass you by. And I've talked about this extensively with like Emily and like my mentor, Emily Kwok, who you've had on here before. And I know you guys have a relationship She and I have talked about the fact that like people need managing and people need to understand where they're going to go next, because if they don't have their goals aligned, then they're not going to know if they're achieving anything, so to say. And that sounds really, I had the same conversation with Hadria Gracie when I was in London in 2019, before the pandemic hit. We were at dinner and he asked me a very simple question because we were discussing about, we were discussing me coming back to competition and he asked me, well, what are your goals? And I said, well, a little bit of this, a little bit of that in general, this is what I want. And he's like, that doesn't sound specific enough. And I was the, I was in this grand hippy dippy philosophical phase where I was like, everything is all love and peace, man. (laughs) If I have the skin on my back, I'm good. And he was like, well, that's, that's not real. That's not sustainable. What do you want in 10 years? What do you want in one year? What do you want in one month? And I didn't have any answers for him. And at the time I thought, well, that's a question that I don't care to answer because it doesn't apply to me. I'm okay with what I have. I don't care about progressing in that way. I don't need to be so calculated. And now looking back at that, I'm like, damn, he was correct. He was good in asking me these questions that were really hard because I didn't have the answers for them. I did not have an answer for what my goals were going to be. And I noticed that the more specific I became with my goals, the easier they they were to achieve. Some of them were even, I think, manifested into fruition. Something like selling artwork was manifested because of opportunities I had in seeing art shows pop up in my periphery and applying for them and connecting with people from those art shows and getting those opportunities later on. So being very specific with your goals is absolutely integral when you're floating in an abstract profession. Now with jujitsu, it seems a little bit more concrete. You can take the route of instructor. You can take the route of competitor. You can try and create a product surrounding jujitsu and you know your audience. You know that jujitsu people like jujitsu, right? There's not going to be a jujitsu person that's like, I hate what you're doing. They're going to be like, you're doing jujitsu. And if it's something I've seen before, then cool. It's a kind of, maybe it's a revitalization of a known fundamental foundational concept. If it's something they haven't seen, they're like, wow, okay, I want to spend money on understanding this, or I want to engage with this content because I want to understand this better because it's something new. But in art, oh my gosh, somebody that likes realism or photorealism will hate abstract art. Somebody that loves abstract art will hate impressionism. And it's like everywhere you go, someone has a different opinion and the people that have money to pay for their opinions or back up their opinions sometimes have like insane opinions that a lot of artists like maybe don't agree with, or maybe they don't want to produce art for people like that, but sometimes they have to. And the kind of con- conclusion to be being an artist or having a career as an artist is everywhere. You can sell work, you can show work, you can be um, collaborating with a gallery to produce work for them. You can design pieces, you can commercialize your art, you can sell t-shirts. Like the opportunities are vast and limitless and you don't really have guidance unless you go to get your master's in art, you might receive some guidance from professors. You might have a little bit more of a stepping stone. Galleries might take you a little bit more seriously. But there's so many places to go that if you don't lock down a path for yourself that you are managing yourself, 
you're not really going to move anywhere. It's kind of similar to being an actor and auditioning for roles that maybe you have no business playing. You might just be shooting blanks instead of kind of launching yourself and digging your teeth into something that is of substance and will launch your career forward. Yeah, I there is so much wisdom there in what you just said. I feel this. Like I think that one of the challenges that we have in a lot of professions is that we kind of have this idea in our mind as a society that there are some jobs that are like quote unquote professional and then there's others that aren't. I mean, as an example, you know, growing up in tech, the roadmap for me to become a productive professional was extremely clear. And even then, with everything laid out for me in terms of exactly what I need to do, it was tremendously difficult all the same. Whereas with artists, or I would argue even with jujitsu practitioners, we don't really give them that roadmap. I mean, yes, we can teach technical skills to people. We can say, here is how you create art or here is how you grapple. But do we sit someone down and say, look, you know, once you get this black belt, you got to realize, you know, you're probably only going to be in your competitive prime until your 30s and you're still going to have to pay the bills and feed your family and your priorities are going to change and you're going to want to have a legacy and you're going to want to make a social impact. What about, you know, how are you going to do that? And I would venture to guess that most competitors who are in their 20s, even in their 30s, have put zero thought into what life is going to look like afterwards after their competitive prime. You know, maybe they've got some some back of the mind idea about, oh, I'll, you know, I'll make a school, but they haven't put much thought into it. And I would say similar for art, we have a problem in society where I think we do not properly appreciate the value of art. You know, we live in a world of numbers, right? If if you can if you can quantify something, it's considered valuable. You know, it's easy to say that finance is valuable, technology, software are valuable, stuff like this, logistics are valuable because you can quantify it. But art is harder because like you said, everything is so subjective. And if everything is subjective, it makes it hard for a dumbass to know the value of something. I mean, I, I can give a perfect example, right? I started software being like a nuts and bolts gears type of guy, like doing the most hardcore software engineering work you could. It's basically like just like typing ones and zeros into the computer almost. And at that level, it's very easy for people to kind of have a sense of whether you're doing something that's that's hard. Because like if I put this in front of my dad, he's not going to be able to do it. So he'll immediately be able to understand, oh, well, Steve must have at least some sort of skill that is worth paying for because I sure as heck can't do it. But because art is so subjective, everyone thinks that they're fully qualified to weigh in. I started moving more into the software design side of things like user experience. And at that point, you're dealing more with things like what's the psychology of this or where should the buttons go? And any moron can have an opinion on that and they will. And so you see the same thing in art where because it's subjective everyone can have an opinion. And because everyone can have an opinion, they all think they're just as smart as the artist. And because they all think they're just as smart as the artist, they don't value the artist. And that's a trend that I see in the arts. And I think it's a bad trend. I think it's something that we really need to reconsider in terms of how we as a society value art and the artistic process. I completely agree with you. And you hit the nail on the head with that comparison between tech and art. It is extremely subjective and in a way, everything you produce exists in a vacuum until it is exposed and until someone ascribes value to it. And then the person that ascribes value to it is the person that is willing to buy it. And the person that is buying it, what do they see in it? You know, and what do they value your work as? You might be selling a piece of work for a hundred dollars, you might be selling a piece of work for a thousand dollars, and then someone will come along and say, Hey. That $100 piece of work needs to be $100,000. And that $10,000 piece of work needs to be a dollar because it's crap. And the people that end up paying for this work, what are they enabling? You know, what is their goal? Why do they like this art? Why is it interesting to them? A lot of um, my, one of my close friends is somebody that is always bringing me into the now of like what is going on with different collaborations, what showings are happening around New York. And something that he always talks about is how many people that have the money to pay for luxury goods, like high quality fine art, which can get very expensive, especially if you look at historical pieces, how many of those people are buying art just for the price tag? 
The same way that wow. people will buy uh, fashion just for the price tag. People will buy Gucci or Prada, not because it's a good quality t-shirt. It might be. It really might be. But for I don't think we're looking for the best touch, right? The best feel to touch in a t-shirt. I think we're looking for the branding. I think we're looking for what it means. And unfortunately, nowadays, I wonder kind of where art is going to go with branding because we're seeing we're seeing kind of this transference of uh famous through social media or famous through like social media apps qualifying you for being a better producer of something so somebody that is trying to enter into the realm of modeling maybe a terrible runway model they may not have a walk they may not have a look they may not take photos very well but maybe they are have an interesting looking face and have 500,000 social media followers and that qualifies them to be represented by a very high level agency as opposed to somebody who might have the actual talent and skill and may practice really hard at it and just doesn't have that available to them so what are we going to see the same thing in art and jiu jitsu where we see people having this social social backing that elevates them to the next level of their careers while the talent or the the work ethic may not even really be there. Yeah, this is a fascinating area where perhaps jiu-jitsu and the artistic process diverge because in jiu-jitsu, you know, jiu-jitsu is quantifiable, right? You put two people in, they spar, someone wins. So you can at least measure to some degree whether someone is is legitimate and they know what they're talking about, right? I mean, there's you can you can evaluate the effectiveness of techniques. Whereas in the art process, so much of it is subjective, right? If someone does everything completely right from an artistic process, but no one wants the product, versus some Instagram influencer who craps out something and just due to the size of their following, they get a tremendous amount of interest. How do we balance that blade? Like, what what exactly does that mean? Is is it truly the case that social proof is the only way to evaluate art? Like, I mean, you know, they say in in economics that the value of something is what someone will pay for, right? It doesn't matter how good or bad it is technically; it matters what someone will pay for, and that's got to be a frustrating thing in the artistic process because you can do everything just right, but there are also external factors to the art itself, which are going to ultimately impact how people see the value of your work. Yeah, 1000%. And I'm realizing now that people might not realize the kinds of advice or the kinds of feedback you're given as an artist. One time I went to a gallery in, I believe it was Key West or maybe West Palm Beach, Florida. My mom's friend's friend's friend, <laughs> very many degrees of separation off, owned a gallery. And she was this older woman. And my mom, I think when I was 16 or 17, I think I was 16, brought me there with her friend's friend to have my portfolio evaluated by this woman. And it was the first time I'd gotten an opportunity like that. And the only reason this was happening is because I had brought a giant pad of paper with me to Florida, this giant mixed media pad that was like three feet by two feet or maybe three by four. And I was making these large scale marker drawings of really intricately designed ethereal spaces on them. And I would wake up every morning at 6.30 or 7 a.m. and first go for a run or go on the elliptical and then get some coffee. And then as soon as I came back down to where we were staying, I would start to draw. And if I wasn't drawing, I was coloring or shading. And I was doing this for hours every day. And my parents would say, let's go to the beach. And I'd say, I'm going to stay here and I'm going to work on my drawing. Or they'd say, let's go get dinner. And I'm like, "Uh, if you could bring me back something, that'd be awesome. But I really want to stay here and work on my drawing. And they finally tugged me out of the house for long enough for me to visit their friend's friend. And we had dinner together and they were talking about how they weren't getting to see me. And my parents were making a joke about how I wasn't available because I was spending all of my time bunkered down in the condo that we were staying in working on drawings. So inevitably they showed her my drawings and inevitably we made this connection. So I went to this lady who was this gallery owner and I brought my whole portfolio with me. And at the time what I was making maybe wasn't, it was, it was creative. It was nice to look at. I enjoyed what I was doing. 
it probably wouldn't have been evaluated as fine art standards unless it was made by somebody who already had a significant presence in the art realm. And this lady looked at my art and she said a lot of wonderful things. And she definitely said that I had a future with it as long as I made adjustments, as long as I made connections, yada, yada. She wasn't going to be the one to offer me all of this. She was just there to kind of give me some advice. And then I asked her, well, how would you market this? Like, how much do you think I could sell something like this for? And she said, well, I think it depends on your audience. If you have an audience of people who have been watching your art career blossom and have been invested in you from the very beginning, and you've been working at this for years and years, they'll value it as as something like more than somebody who just saw it as like maybe some passerby who saw it on the street. But if you don't have that audience, then you have no frame of reference. And then I was like, well, if I don't have an audience because I haven't been selling, can I value my art based off of labor? Can I value my art based off how many man hours I put into working on this? And she said, no, it doesn't matter if you worked on a piece of art for an hour or a hundred hours or two years. The people that will evaluate it are the audience. And if you don't have the audience, then you're not going to have an evaluation or you're not going to have a very high price for your work. And that was confounding to me. That crushed my spirit a little bit because here I am working on these drawings, putting hours of time into them, spending months on some pieces. And someone came and just told me that my work could be worth 10 bucks if somebody decided that it was worth 10 bucks. And she wasn't trying to hurt my feelings. She was actually just telling me the truth. And that really cut deep. But it also made me realize that in order to be a successful artist, you also have to be a successful business person. And you do have to put yourself out there. If you don't have a network, if you don't have a famous relative, if you don't have somebody, a manager that's going to push you out into the world, you're going to have to do it for yourself. And I think I realized that in jujitsu as well. I think in jiu-jitsu when I was first coming up, I kind of just assumed that me winning worlds, which was for sure a dream of mine, 1000%, it was never something I didn't want. It was something I worked very hard for. But I assumed that once I would get those gold medals, that my life would change so much. And I was thinking at it from the, about it from this perspective of an artist that gets signed with their first record label an actor that gets their first large role, their million dollar role, which will feature them in all kinds of movie theaters and get them the Oscar nom. And it really didn't amount to that at all. Whenever I'm thinking about this, I am forced to recall this conversation I had with Shanji Hibera when we were in the locker room waiting to get tested for steroids after, I think, the 2015 World Championships. And I asked him how he was going to celebrate his world's win. And he said, well, I'm going to go home after this, and I'm probably going to take a shot of tequila, and then I'm going to go to bed. To be fair, that sounds awesome. (laughs) It does. He said, I'm going to go to bed and I'm going to wake up the next day and I'm going to teach class. I'm going to teach morning class. It was a Sunday. The next day was going to be Monday. He was going to have to go back to work. And that hit me just like that gallery owner hit me as, wow, this is work. This is a profession. There's no there's no miracles. And then it also, the two worlds coming together like that made me realize that Maybe there weren't really any miracles anywhere you look. Maybe every very successful person really did work as hard as they say they did to get to that role. And obviously, some people have nepotism behind them. Some people have family wealth. Some people that have been in this country for years, like the Carnegies or the Rothschilds, the Rockefellers, they have so much backing them. They can definitely find success without ever needing, ever wanting it, ever needing it, ever needing to pay for bills or ever needing to put dinner on the table for their family. But if you put in hard work and if you figure out what problems need solving, maybe you will be able to succeed and it would take a lovely cocktail of luck and opportunity and availability 
but maybe you could do it. And I think that attitude that I had in the past of like, I can't believe nothing's happening or I can't believe that something that I do could be valued as less than I think it is, was very hurtful. And I think for for me, it was hurtful for my career. It was keeping me back. And now that I have this different perspective of you really have to work for everything you earn, which is so funny that I'm learning this now at 25 when I've already achieved (laughs) my world championship wins, I have just a, a more pleasure in the process, I guess you could say. It's funny you bring that up because when I talk to people who are younger in their career, you know, they're getting started and you ask them what their goals are, they're going to say something like, I want to win the Mundials or I want to win ADCC. They've got these like specific tournament focused goals. But whenever I talk to people who have already been there, they don't talk like that. Robert Deagle, when he was on the show, you know, he's, he's an incredible grappler, succeeded at the highest levels. He said that, and I may butcher this, so I'm trying to recall from memory, but he said that his goal is to grapple with engagement in the spirit of engagement. His goal was not, I've got this tournament in April that I want to win. His goal is, I think that grappling is all about engaging with your opponent, and I want to grapple in such a way that I am always engaging. I mean, basically, that's a vision statement, right? In in the corporate world, we'd call that a vision statement. It's not something specific. It's a paradigm that you can always move towards. And most high-level people who have succeeded at the goals that most other people only dream of they don't come in with those targeted goals like that about like, oh yeah, my goal is to win this particular, I mean, of course they want to win the tournament, but that's not really their end goal. That's a a step in the process. And I, maybe a part of that is just that as you succeed, you know, the problems that you have grow or change and your goals get bigger. It's, you know, as a, as a great sage once said, mo money, mo problems, right? <laughs> well, it's like you said, you know, you might be obsessing about this, this short-term goal, like a tournament, and maybe you succeed. And then afterwards it's like, well, now what? You know, I've definitely had that in my career where I've had these goals and then one day I actually achieve them and it comes and goes so fast that I don't even think to finally celebrate this. And then one day I realize, you know, wasn't I trying to achieve that for 10 years? And then I I did and I just kind of moved on and forgot about it. It's it's interesting how you can get trapped in these short term obsessions that ultimately are not going to move the needle in your life as much as just a good, strong vision and philosophy will. That's that's something that I've I've heard quite commonly from people who have truly succeeded. And something else I'd like to throw onto there, you know, you talked about the value of art and how just putting in time is is not good enough. And you talked about the mindset that you've had to build to succeed in this world. And this is something that I think we we fail to teach people properly. You know, when you go to school, our entire school and education system is built to funnel people into jobs, right? Which makes sense to some degree, but we are training people to be employees. And fundamentally, what that means is we are training people to expect that they're selling their time for a fixed price, right? You know, I have the skills to sell blocks of my time for $20 an hour or whatever, right? That's that's the way that we train people to think. And that's all well and good if you want to work at someone else's company. But if you want to actually be an entrepreneur and, you know, being an artist in many senses, that's exactly what it is, right? You're an entrepreneur. The link between effort and outcome is not as clear, right? You could have days where you spend years working on something that flops, Or you could have times when you just crap something out, but just you were in the right place at the right time. And by the virtue of being consistent, you shot enough shots that one of them hit the bullseye, right? So it's it's an interesting thing where you have to learn if you want to be an entrepreneur that effort in does not always relate to outcome. You know, you could you could have massive expenditures of wasted effort, but you could also have just quick wins that dramatically increase the value of, of your career and your future work. And so the process that comes out of that is most people learn it's all about taking a lot of shots, right? You don't want to be the artist necessarily who hides in a hole for five years and then comes up with their magnum opus and no one reads it. You never want to be that. But if you can take a lot of shots, that gives you a lot of learning and growth opportunities. It helps you just get better the next time around, get your name out there, learn a lot faster. It creates a positive feedback loop of getting lessons and then applying those lessons. So that kind of mentality is so important when you're an entrepreneur is to not think of your time as an asset that you sell. But really, it's all about just like getting results, getting outcomes, getting stuff out there and with every outcome, learning and getting better the next time around. 
Yes. Wow. You just said a lot of stuff that really resonated with me. So yeah, hiding in a bunker will never bring you to where you want to be as an entrepreneur. But also, I think there's also something integral and critical that needs to be communicated to people that want to make it as creative entrepreneurs, at least, is efficiency. Mm-hmm. And this is where I think that people, if they can't be their own managers, really need to find somebody to manage and organize on their behalf. Because I see so many people, and this is without judgment because I have been one of them, trying to sell their work on websites like Craigslist or trying to sell their work on websites where people are there to buy like futons or fun pillowcases. You know, people are not going to expend top dollar for a canvas work or something that is an installation that might be worth so much, but people won't spend money for an installation for their 400 square foot apartment. You know, they're not going to shell out top dollar for something like that because art is a luxury. It's something that not a lot of people have budgeted in their budgets to spend a lot of money on. So work on finding where your audience, who your audience is, first of all, what kinds of people do you want to attract to your art? And I think you definitely have the ability to do that. I have the ability to do that as a coach. I can attract students that I want to see. I don't have to attract students that are competitors. I don't have to attract students that are hobbyists. I can attract students that resonate with my perspective of how a jiu-jitsu gym should be run, resonate with my perspective of what jiu-jitsu is, and can relate to me and interact with me and feel comfortable with me. And in the same way, I think people should think about building their entrepreneurial audiences. They should figure out what kinds of people they want owning or interacting or paying for their services, for their products, and figure out where to find them, how to talk with them, how to communicate with them most efficiently, and how you can cut these kinds of deals and cut these kinds of exchanges. Because I definitely agree with shoot your shot whenever you can. I like put your artwork out on as many websites as you can. Just as I would say, like if you're somebody that's trying to be an instructor or somebody that's trying to lead a successful jiu-jitsu page or, or YouTube page, Throw that YouTube page everywhere. Put it on Facebook, put it on Instagram, put it on LinkedIn, like put it everywhere you can so that somebody might see it and then you might connect with your audience like that. But also take stock of what's happening. And I'm this is advice that I'm giving myself right now, <laughs> not even anybody listening. Look at what's happening. Where are you finding success? Are people from Facebook reaching out to you and saying, I want to see more of this video? Are people on YouTube doing that? Are they reaching you through email? Are they looking at you through your website? How are they connecting with you and what kinds of people are connecting with you and what do their networks look like and how can you venture into that space? That's something that I've been learning myself a lot because I used to think that anybody could be an owner of my artwork. Anybody could want to buy it. And then I realized that I was starting to modify my artwork to fit a certain audience. So I think that's something else that artists might do. They might realize that they want to sell art to an audience that they don't necessarily create for. So they'll start to modify their work to fit it so that the audience will be interested. And you might see that with famous Instagram accounts where they draw a lot of celebrities. You might see that those people on their own time and their downtime might make like really beautiful, intricate oil paintings. But What they're posting on social media might be just a pencil, ballpoint pen, photorealism drawing of a celebrity, which usually gets the most engagement and which will usually get an audience member to be interested in buying something like that. So how do you connect with people that think in the way that you think about your art and jujitsu so that you can connect with them for whatever purpose, whether it's collaborating, selling, just maybe sharing ideas with one another or having that space to like communicate with one another about something like that. That's something that I've been thinking about a lot. So there is this topic in the world of poker. Now, I don't know much about poker. I am frankly not smart. You sound very confident about (laughs) poker. (laughs) Let me tell you, if you hadn't said that last statement, I would have been like, oh, this guy's a great poker player. I already know that. I have a lot of experience at sounding like I know what I'm talking about on areas where I have no business talking about them, jujitsu being one of them. (laughs) But in, in the world of poker, there's this concept that they call table selection. I mean, poker is basically psychological warfare, right? Like there aren't actually that many rules to the game. If you're playing modern poker, basically you're just trying to mind fuck the other person. That's essentially how you do it, right? So 
they have this idea that they call table selection. And basically what this means is if you want to be real good at poker, you don't just wander into a table and sit down and plunk down and off you go and you play. You try to identify the table that you think you can win at before you even sit down. It's about choosing the the realm where you're most likely to win from a probabilistic standpoint before you even actually start. And I mean, this is a similar concept that you see all high level, um, high level people do. I mean, in the martial arts world, like think about the strategy that goes into things like weight classes, right? I mean, that is an area of table selection. People will, will alter their own body so that they can try to create the best chance of success before they even actually step on the mat. And this is a mistake, I mean, that I've made repeatedly in my youth and you touched on it exactly. If you are going and you're kind of scrounging the bottom of the barrel for business, you will find and work with people who treat you like you're the bottom of the barrel. And I mean, Craigslist is a great example of this. It it is possible to find good business on Craigslist. I, I have done it before. I've actually found extremely profitable work and business deals off of Craigslist, but it's rare, right? Most of the time, if you're going on there and you're doing a like a one-off job that someone wants to pay you a hundred bucks to do, you're probably going to wind up with the type of customer who makes life extraordinarily difficult for you. You have to fight for every penny. They undervalue your work. They're always haggling you. And that kind of stuff can have a psychological impact, right? If you're dealing with people who are fundamentally cheap and don't see the value in your work, Not only is it going to be hard to make a lot of money, but you're dealing with people who are constantly trying to get a good deal. And the way they do that is by constantly trying to devalue you. And if you surround yourself with enough of these people, that will eventually sink in. I mean, I remember, like like I said, many, many years ago, uh, you know, I would do like contract work to build websites for people, for example. And there would be times where I would quote someone what I thought was already a reasonable price. And they'd come back to me and say, well, I downloaded this WordPress template for 40 bucks. So why should I pay you this price? I think I should pay you 40 bucks. And I'm like, motherfucker, I'm not going to sit here and spend 50 hours of my time building a website for you for 40 bucks. And it used to be when I was starting out that I felt that any business was good business. And so I would pursue these garbage deals and it wound up being a total waste of time. And eventually I learned this art of table selection. Like you can make your life a lot better if you just completely filter out the people who are going to undervalue you. I mean, yes, if you're focusing on the on the harder to get fish, the bigger fish, yeah, it's going to be harder. But you're better off probably shooting your shot there than fishing for for minnows that aren't actually going to make your life worthwhile. Unless unless you're doing the type of work where you can find a way to do that at scale with minimal effort to yourself. Like if you're building a, a web tool and you can sell it to a bunch of people for five bucks a month and you can automate it. That's different because it doesn't take any of your time. But if you're tr- if you're trying to do things like sell your blood, sweat, and tears, right? Sell your art or sell a labor that you actually had to make that requires an effort of time, you're better off filtering out the people who don't see the value in what you're trying to do. Completely. And I think, honestly, Steve, I think this extends even far beyond business far beyond entrepreneurial stuff. I think this concept is like integral for the way kind of we conduct ourselves in daily life. Like if we surround ourselves with the wrong people in terms of our friendships or our relationships, or even like the people that we choose to be our partners, we are kind of, we might be setting ourselves up for futures of failure or stagnation. As you said before, if we're scraping at the bottom of the barrel, if we're not recognizing how much we're worth from the very beginning, then we're we're like it's an impending fact that we're going to associate with people that will drag us down. We're going to enter into situations that will use up a lot of time and resources for not a lot of, I guess, payment or return. And that's just not the way that I think many people want to live their lives. I think one thing that I have to credit jujitsu for that I value a lot in myself is confidence. I used to be the shyest kid around. I used to be unable to speak. And my parents would always be like, well, she's so shy. What's her problem? And I'm like, guys, I don't speak fucking English. (laughs) I can't speak this language. And you're telling me that she's shy. She doesn't talk loud enough when she speaks to people at the cash register or whatever. I'm like, I just don't know what I'm saying. (laughs) I don't really have a lot of confidence in the words that I'm saying because this is a foreign language to me. So it took me a while to kind of find my footing and find my voice and find my language. 
And something that really helped is jujitsu because until I was maybe like 15 or 16, I really didn't have to vocalize myself in any way that was meaningful. You know, you're not, when you're a teenager, you're never put up in front of a stage unless you're doing a theater show or you're giving a speech for school or something. You really aren't pressed to have your oratory skills in a good place. You can just kind of get by with talking to your friends, talking to the people that are closest to you and having their respect. But what jujitsu did for me is it put me in a room filled with adults when I was a young kid into teenagehood and forced me to communicate with them about stuff that adults cared about. So this is conceptual stuff, theories about stuff, family stuff, jujitsu stuff, but complex uh, topics that weren't just, well, like regular school gossip or drama or what was on TV last night, more compelling stuff. Not to say that that stuff isn't important. It has its place, but it forced me out of this hole of like just focusing on speaking about things that were within my comfort zone, which brought me into having concepts challenged, which brought me into like, I was um, just something very simple. Like I was crazy Republican conservative when I was a kid crazy Republican. Not to say that Republicans are crazy, just saying that I had no basis for my political beliefs. I didn't really even know what conservative stood for. I was just regurgitating what my family was saying, what certain news channels were saying, what I was reading online. It was all just fixed in my brain like memories, just like studying for history class. That was what I was saying. And when I grew older and I was able to receive more information from more people about their personal experiences and then look at more kind of, I don't want to say media because media is difficult. Everything can be kind of biased, but definitely from others learned experiences, I noticed that the world was a lot more nuanced and tricky than I had previously thought. And it completely changed my political beliefs my spiritual beliefs, just my social beliefs, everything, everything that I thought was kind of set in stone. And that access was granted to me just based off of having community around me that was different and diverse. And I credit my self-confidence now and my confidence in the things that I do now. And then my confidence in how to value myself as a human being, how to value myself um, based off of my jiu-jitsu knowledge, how to value myself as an artist off of this confidence that I got from being able to communicate effectively with adults and also teach adults from a young age, all because of jujitsu. Yeah, I think actually that's a shadow benefit of jujitsu for kids that we don't talk about, which is it gives them experience being adults. And this is something I wish I had more of when I was younger. You know, most kids, most of their experiences with other people their age. And so when the day comes that they graduate and they're released out into the real world, they don't know how to act. And it took me a long time to really learn how to develop myself as an adult. And I really wish I were engaged in an activity when I were younger that would have given me more experience working with adults and not just a bunch of, you know, idiotic children and teenagers. It would have been nice to talk to some more worldly people who can actually bring some wisdom that I don't normally see just by going to school every day. So I guess one closing question I have for you, Dom, we talk a lot about jujitsu as the gentle art. And, you know, you, of course, there is famously the art of jujitsu. We often apply these two terms together. And I would ask you, as someone who understands both domains, would you say jujitsu is, is it actually an art? Wow. Cool question, Steve. Yeah, I would 1000% qualify jujitsu as an art. My personal favorite reference for people that don't do jiu-jitsu, and even for people that do, is I look at it as a ballroom dance or just a dance. But the people that are engaged in this ballroom dance don't know one another's choreography. So one dancer is always trying to pull the other dancer into their choreography. So there's always this kind of push and pull and this give and take And eventually, based off of time, based off of the structure of the dance, the dance will have to end because one dancer will succumb to the other's movements and then the performance will be complete. So for me, the structure, looking at jiu-jitsu as a dance, 
as something that automatically transforms it into an art. But also there's so much in jiu-jitsu beyond what we see it on the surface when we're thinking about it as a sport. There's so much movement that is intimate and vulnerable and based off of states of flow and reactivity. And we have to kind of, it's very weighted. It's very heavy. Like there's something very important about the kinds of movements that occur in jiu-jitsu. And it's, it kind of falls beyond weight loss or self-defense or any other reason why somebody might initially be intrigued by it. I think the, the reason we stay with jiu-jitsu is because, I don't know, there's some kind of weird, almost druggy, like ecstasy behind it. There's something awesome within the art itself that compels us to keep going. And I really do think it's because we enter into um, not only meditative states when we're uh, practicing, when we're drilling, when we're reacting based off of muscle memory or the amount of repetitions we've done, but there's also some kind of wonderful play associated with it. We're able to place ourselves in positions of extraordinary danger and we trust complete strangers with our bodies. We're like, yeah, I will give you my arms. Don't break them. <laughs> I'll give you my neck. Don't destroy my trachea by trying to choke me too hard. We entrust strangers that we don't really know. We don't know their families. We don't know their life story. We don't know if they're sociopaths or not. We let them take our bodies out on loan to practice painful, violent moves on. And there's something hilarious about that. There's something absolutely <laughs> devastatingly hilarious about the fact that we do this to ourselves. And I think that is might be one of the reasons why it's so intoxicating. That is a super profound statement and something that I've never actually thought of before, but now I'll never be able to unthink it, which is that it, it is weird. Like I'm basically going up to a complete stranger and I'm I'm giving them permission to effectively pretend to kill me, except they're not really pretending. And I know that if I tap, they'll let go. It's weird. I've, I've said before that the tap is a move everyone should get good at because it's the only move in jujitsu with a 100% success rate, right? Like you've got complete strangers, people you might not even know their names and you will go in there and let them try to, you know, shred your ACL or, you know, compress your carotid or hyperextend your elbow. And it's fun. It's weird. Like I would never give these people my credit card number. I would never give them the key to my house, but for some reason I'm totally okay with letting them try to kill me. It's really strange now that you bring that up to me. <laughs> yeah, it is. It's so funny. It's so hilarious. Like I just, I don't know. When I think about guys that take themselves very, guys and girls, not not trying to like qualify one one person. When I think about people that are trying to take themselves very seriously in jujitsu, I'm like, bro, this stuff is hilarious. How can you possibly <laughs> be thinking about it in such serious terms? We're basically kind of monkeys that achieved some sort of greater understanding of ourselves. And we're deciding to immerse ourselves in a sport where we get to simulate murder comfortably. It, it is it is weird. It is weird. Like we spent all of this time evolving and building up our society to the point where we can most of us can live quite comfortable lives. And then what do we do with all of that extra time? We simulate all of the violence that probably was a part of life a few hundred years ago. <laughs> you know what it's making me think of now? I immediately thought of, well, yes, all this is true. And at the same time, this is someone's therapy. Somebody goes to the gym and has this experience and they're totally fine. And what it's making me think of is not only is jiu-jitsu affording a level of control to the one person that they wouldn't be able to find outside of the gym because they're so able to kind of use their own knowledge and their own skill set and strength and movement ability to create something and create a scenario that might be dangerous for somebody and good for them. But you are also forced to put trust in your fellow like human person. You are forced to place trust in someone you don't really know that well for that outcome to happen. So you have the same degree of vulnerability in being placed in a compromising situation as they do, pending ranking level, pending experience, whatever. There's still an opportunity for pain to happen on both sides. 
But you are also forced to say, hey, we live in a world where we see people all the time and the amount of people getting murdered is less than the amount of people that are staying alive. So we're kind of okay. Like, I'm okay sharing the streets with you. I'm okay sharing a gym with you. I'm okay sharing space with you. It's kind of a affirmation that we're okay. We might not always be okay, but for this moment, we're okay. That's an amazing way to tie this up. Thank you again so much, Dom, for dropping by and dropping all these knowledge bombs here. I guess, why don't we circle back to the beginning here? Plug your work again. How can people find you? How can they get in touch with you? How can they see your work? Yes, please. So once again, my favorite source of social media where I'm most active and most willing to engage with people is my Instagram, which is once again at Dom the Bomb Your Mom, D-O-M-D-A-B-O-M-B-U-R-M-O-M. And if you want to take a look at my blog, if you want to take a look at who I am as an athlete, read a little bit more about my story, head on over to my website, www.dominicao.com. That's my first name and the very first letter of my last name, dominicao.com. If you're more interested in my artistic abilities and want to see what my work looks like, buy some work or connect with me through that link. My art website is www.dominica-art.com. Dominica, my first name, dash art.com. Awesome. Thank you so much, Dom. And on our side, if you want to find more about the concepts we talk about on the show, if you want to join our mailing list, or if you want to just get in touch with us, bjjmentalmodels.com is the mothership. That's the website where you can get all of that good stuff and connect with us. Additionally, the people who keep the lights on here, back on the topic of the people who know our value, it's the people on Patreon. You can go to patreon.com slash bjjmentalmodels. That's where you get the premium experience. We're trying to really build an awesome product that doesn't just make you better at jujitsu, but ultimately we want to kind of tie in a lot of the concepts and the mindset stuff that we talk about on the rest of the show. The way to get access to that again is on our Patreon. So please do consider that if you're not already on there, patreon.com slash BJJ mental models. Dom, thanks again so much for coming by. Greatly appreciated. I love the direction this conversation went. I'd actually love to get you back on the podcast at some point to talk about some of the other things in a bit more detail. Like the, the whole bullying thing, I think, is something I'd love to do just a whole episode on in and of itself. Fantastic, Steve. Thank you so much for the opportunity. It was amazing getting to know you better and having this insightful conversation. Thank you so much for making so much room for me to discuss art and a little bit more background about where my thinking is in that realm. I really enjoy this conversation and I look forward to being back on soon. Awesome. Thanks again to you. And of course, thanks to all of the listeners for listening and talk to you guys next week.